on her merry way, though she's only queen for a day. Hey everybody, welcome to Cinemus, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm amateur poet Mike Emmel, and I'm very happy to welcome back my co-host for this episode. You all know him as one of the hosts on the Casual Cinecast, as well as several Cinemus episodes like The Tree of Life, Boyhood, and Singing in the Rain. He's the guy who doesn't take his shoes off for anyone or anything. It's Justin Herring. Justin, welcome back. Hey. Thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure, never a chore. Uh, how how are things on Casual Cinecast, dude? It's great. It's great to have you back. Things are things are good over there, man. We we're getting back to like being really regular, you know, with like the holidays, and um, I don't know if I've ever said it on this show or um or what, but I'm a huge soccer fan. So with like the World Cup being in a weird like around the holidays, like basically I was out of commission for like a month and a half of being able to do it. But we're we're getting back to like really releasing episodes like every week and getting a lot more criterion episodes in there now that we're through you know having to pause criterions to cover all the oscar stuff but so it's really great nice what are you guys uh covering up here next uh let's see the last episode we did was a casualty criterion uh on on the waterfront beautiful and um yeah i guess for those who don't know we try to do every other episode as a film from the Criterion Collection, uh, so that's kind of our shtick. So we do a new movie, then a Criterion movie, new movie, then a Criterion movie, and so on. So I guess in, in contrast to that, though, uh, with uh, Titanic being re-released in theaters, our next episode on a, a, a so-called new movie or a non-Criterion movie is going to be on Titanic, because one of our hosts, Chris, has never seen it. I am so excited for this, because I heard that episode where Chris said that, and I almost got him an invite on cinemas but i was gonna be very clear i wasn't gonna be able to make it out to the titanic re-release so i'm glad he's gonna get to talk about it on air we can get his reactions on your guys' show yeah i'm really excited to see what he thinks about it especially with it having the reputation it does um for so long so we do do the occasional thing like like that if something's just really important or interesting um we'll jump out but generally new stuff and criterions it's a great show, man. Whereas I hope that everybody who follows Cinemas at this point, with all the great episodes you've done for us, knows where to find Casual Cinecast. But just in case we got any newcomers, where can they find you guys? The best place is Twitter, and that's at Casual Cinecast. Um, of course, as, as far as the podcast goes, you can find us on every feed that I know of, Spotify, Apple, um, whatever the heck else is out there. We, we've been like, the uh, episodes automatically post to YouTube, so you can search us on YouTube and um, listen to it that way if you're into that uh, but the, the twitter is the best place to like follow us in terms of content not that we post a ton but for our criterion episodes one of the things we do is uh, when we are getting ready to pick those each of the hosts the three hosts each pick a film and we put those three films on a poll on our twitter account and then the listeners the people who follow us on twitter get to vote and choose out of those three what our next criterion film will be so that's a great place to follow us if you want to actually help you know dictate the content of what we're doing which is always a treat. Are are you on the up and up? Are you starting to win more of those polls? I think I won like two in a row. I know on, on the waterfront was mine. And okay, so you're back that's... on top. We got to knock you back down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I lost for a <laughs> while. I was like on a big losing streak, but I think it's because I just kept choosing Tree of Life, and nobody yeah. wants to <laughs> do that movie. Apparently, I did. I did. You did. I always bet that. on Brando, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, great, man. Well, I highly recommend everybody go follow his tags. The trio is back, full power, 
And uh, I'm excited for where the show is going to be going. I'm especially excited to hear about Titanic, a movie I love. Yeah, I like it, but honestly, it's been forever since I've sat down and watched the whole thing. Like, even after it came out, I used to just kind of go straight to the second videotape, you know, because I had it on VHS. Uh-huh. Oh, that's kind of that's where I start a lot of the time. Yeah, because yeah. I like the more actiony how, uh, bits. How many straight concentrated minutes on the episode will you guys sing uh, the Celine Dion song? <laughs> how long is the song? Just bold- I don't know, four minutes. Okay, then maybe multiply it times three. So like 12 minutes? 12 minutes? Excellent. Yeah. I'm in. I'm there. Opening night. Yeah. <laughs> that, that can't be bad content in any way. <laughs> We're each going to do a rendition. That's, there, yeah. that's what it is. Like Each host yes. is going to do our own version of it. I got a ukulele for Christmas, so I think I'm busting out the ukulele cover. Oh, hell yeah. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> And if you, too, want access to great content like that, the Casual Cinecast is going to be your spot. It really is a great show. I love the Criterion chat. And I thank you guys always for loaning your talents here to cinema. So thanks a ton, Justin, and welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Uh, This is one of my favorite podcasts, definitely my favorite podcast to come on, um, other than our own. But also, you know, I do this so rarely, it's kind of like, I do enjoy this as much as doing my own. But maybe that's because I do my own every week. Well, it's it's always a pleasure to have you, and um, I'll, I'll table where that's going to go here real quick to give a welcome to everybody. Welcome back, everybody. We know it has been a little while. We're few and far between on our drops here on Cinemas, but we're glad to have you here because what we've got to have is your help deciding which films truly deserve a spot on the list of essential cinema. And to determine if tonight's film is going to earn a place on that list, we're going to leave it up to all of you to cast your votes on the polls we put out on our social media pages like the Casual Cinecast. We operate mainly out of Twitter, but if you're not already doing so, you can find us there on Twitter, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Facebook. We're on all of them as Cinemusts. And there's where you're going to cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. So while you make sure you're following us on whichever one of those you prefer, I got to give you a quick rundown on how you're going to cast your vote. Every movie we talk about here on Cinemusts gets voted into one of three tiers based on its potential must-see status. At the top tier are the namesakes, the cinemusts, the movies that at least once in their lifetime you recommend everybody see. Absolutely everybody. Full stop. In the middle tier are the cinetrusts, which are movies that might be good, might be bad, but you only recommend them to some people and not quite everybody. And then in the bottom tier are the cinebusts. Maybe a bad movie, maybe a good movie, but for whatever reason, a cinebust is a movie you don't recommend anybody see. You have them invest their time someplace else. So Justin and I are going to be talking about a little film tonight. And um, Justin, I'm really especially excited to have you back on for this because this is a bookend episode. Um, This, oddly enough, is the bookend uh, to our show that was the last time you came on to host that was on D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. And I wondered if you could uh, explain to anybody who didn't catch that episode what exactly the connection is here and why we are kind of pairing these together. Sure, yeah. So. Uh, for a Christmas gift, I think it was like a year ago, not this most recent Christmas, but the one before. Um, it's been a while, yeah. yeah. I got a, a book called uh, Colorization, and it's a uh, hundred years in the of the history of uh, black people in, in film and in cinema. And uh, I recommended it to you, so I was enjoying it. We both kind of read it together and talk, talked about it here and there, and we decided, you know, maybe we should do an episode... <laughs> Uh, on a book from the film and of course you can't really talk about 
the history of black people in cinema without talking about birth of a nation. And that's the first chapter in the book. And I think just in talking about it, we decided to sort of, uh, take a bullet, if you will, and uh, be the ones to, to tackle <laughs> Birth of a Nation because it is in the you know 1001 Films You Must See Before You Die book. So at some point in the podcast, you got to do it. Um, so we, we decided to do it based on having read that, but with the caveat that we would come back and do a bookend episode um, on a film actually from a Black filmmaker that is <laughs> actually celebratory of of black people and, and an accomplishment of black people in cinema versus what birth of a nation is, which is um, horrendous. <laughs> the thing that created the problems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we, we have this short list and uh, you know, folks already know cause they clicked on the name of the episode, but what is this movie that we selected to, to counter birth of a nation? We chose Spike Lee's first film, his debut. She's got to have it from uh, 1986, which, you know, there, there isn't a, a chapter in the book specifically on this film, but there is one on Spike Lee. Yeah. As, and um, I was kind of curious what made you gravitate towards this? Cause we had a short list. We had like four or five from there that we were kicking around. What, what drew you specifically to this one? I think it was from a casual Cinecast episode where we did do the right thing. And, that was my first time to watch that film. And this, this was maybe a year ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, but I've never considered myself a big fan of Spike Lee. Like most of his more recent stuff is all I'd really ever seen. And um, I didn't always love it. And um, some of it I straight up disliked. And, and so when we watched Do the Right Thing, I was blown away because it's incredible. It's great. And uh, that made me want to go back and watch a lot more of the early Spike Lee. So in going through the films in the book, it was like, well, she, she's got to have it. That's in the thousand one must see. And like, I want to see his first film. I want to see what put him on the map. And I think it's only one or two films before do the right thing. So, right. Yeah. I think it's this and school days. And I think do the right thing is his third full length movie. Yeah. So I wanted to just go back and, why not start at the beginning, right? So that's what drew me to this. I don't know about you. I I kind of dove in after you for the same reason as I had never seen She's Gotta Have It. And like you, I I agreed. I I was worried for a minute that like the obvious thing was that we were gonna do do the right thing, which which is not bad, but it was kind of just like I hoped we wouldn't one because I'm intimidated by it because I think it is kind of a perfect movie and and one of the greats. And I kind of wanted something a little just a little like lesser scene, including by me. I'd never seen She's Gotta Have It. So I was excited for something that was like new exposure, um, still had like a lot to chew on, but it, it kind of wasn't honest to like crack open an undisputed masterpiece. So I was very, very happy when we made this decision uh, because we still get to talk Spike Lee, which I agree one of the chapter or his chapter in that in the book is incredible and made me want to go back to a lot of his stuff. So I am uh, I'm really excited for this one to get some early Spike Lee. Yeah, I mean, if you do do the right thing, it's I mean, probably most likely going to be a cinemust and it's kind of like you said, uh, a, a undisputed masterpiece. This is more mysterious. What's going to happen? How are we going to vote? you know yeah 
So, you know, let's let's not beat around it. We're, we're, we're talking about the movie. Let's get into the discussion proper. So for anybody who is new to the show, uh, Justin and I are going to take a couple of minutes to talk about it totally spoiler free. We're going to tell you what it's about, tell you where you can find it. And we're going to vote it into one of the three categories I described earlier, a Cinemust, a Cinetrust, or a Cinebust. And Justin and I each have to give three reasons why we put it into the tier we do. And from there, we will have to back those up with more specifics. Uh, so hang with us if you haven't seen the movie. Uh, you can have a listen, see if it sounds like your thing. If it sounds good, we'll tell you where you can find it. And we will give you spoilers before we start ruining stuff. So Justin, I'm, I'm a cruel host. I always make my co-host uh, give the plot summary. So would you mind explaining what She's Gotta Have It is about? Sure, yeah. And, and I wrote this synopsis, so please feel free to make it better if uh, it's not that great. But <laughs> the film follows Nola Darling as she tries to juggle three sim- or simultaneous casual sexual relationships with three men. Beautiful. Short, sweet, to the point. I think you could get that on the internet. I think it was that good. Yeah. yeah. Maybe <laughs> IMDb will be calling me if they're listening. I think so, yeah. They might. I know. They're always scoping us out for talent. I've lost so many <laughs> folks. Um, so this, um, this was a first time watch for both of us. We're going in like real raw here. I am extremely curious out of a cinemust, a cinetrust or a cinebust, Justin, where's this one fit for you? I, I think as much as I, I enjoyed this movie and I did enjoy it, I actually, I even watched it twice. Um, I think about uh, two days later, I watched it with my wife cause I thought she would like it and she really liked it. She loved it as much as I enjoy it. And I think it's really good. I, I have to vote. A Cinetrust? Okay. I think part of the reason is, before I get into kind of my, my three reasons why, I try not to go too hard on the Cinetrust of like, well, would you recommend it to your grandma if it says the F word in it? You know, like I try not to get too bogged down in the weeds on that. There's some stuff in there that I think you would hesitate to recommend it to everybody for that reason. There's nudity, sex, that sort of thing. Um, but I don't really count that, just FYI. Um, that's just kind of well, a warning. Well, and, and to, yeah, to catch that too, it's why we included in like the uh, criteria that it's, you recommend it to somebody at one point in their life because grandmas were always a, a holdup for us. But, you know, grandma at 35 is a different recommend than grandma at 70. Sure, that's, that's fair. But I, okay. I totally see where you're coming from. Yeah. But, um, okay, so it's, it's a movie not for everybody, but some people. Before you tell us who those people are, how about, what, what are, like, your three reasons that lands it here in this middle tier? Personally, it's fascinating to see the energy that Spike Lee is bringing right from the get-go with this first film and um, how much fun he has with the form, like, with the way he's editing and the way he's shooting and um, just the way he's narratively telling it. And, and it's also fun as, like, a, you know, cinema buff sort of guy to see how much he's pulling influence from cinema history and how much it's kind of referenced. I think that's really, really fun. Uh, there's a sense of wanting to be positive about female sexuality that I really love. Like it feels really progressive for a film from 1986. Um, I'm not sure that it totally holds up like in every possible way. I think there's some issues that probably by like modern standards isn't as progressive uh, as it was in 1986. And then my third reason, and this is kind of the the negative one, um, is that I'm not always convinced by the acting. Uh, Some of it's great, some of it's kind of serviceable, and then some of it just absolutely doesn't work for me. And I also kind of watch it understanding that it is 
a first film. It's very low budget. He casts his sister. He casts his dad. He casts himself. And coming from film school, having made a feature film on a low budget, like I'm very forgiving of the acting. But that not everybody is that way. Like you know, um, I've seen plenty of like independent films that I've worked on on Amazon and that sort of thing. That like, including my own. And like one of the top comments on these low budget ones is like the acting's terrible. So I know most people just can't get past that. <laughs> yeah. So well, most people are excellent yeah. actors. Oh yeah. Yeah. They should know. Right. Yeah. They're very judgmental because they're excellent actors. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so with a sin of trust vote though, you are saying there is an audience here. There, there is a group of people you wholeheartedly recommend the movie to. Who are those folks? C- cinephiles for one, you know, I think are going to love it. They're going to love watching what he's doing. And I think seeing where he comes from and seeing uh, how that develops into things like do the right thing, but just also, you know, the, the shift from other, what other films that are popular from the eighties are doing, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly different from like a John Hughes eighties movie. Right. And uh, it's very, mm-hmm. very counter right. to that. And I think you're just going to enjoy seeing like its place in film history. I think too, just like young people, I think, I think it is ultimately very like progressive for like, I think the female audience for this is huge. Um, my wife, just like I said, she just absolutely loved it way more than I did. Um, and I liked it quite a bit. So I, I think, yeah, I think there's a huge audience and I would think that I, I would be curious about this. Like um, as like a, if I were a black person and I wanted to like, look at my representation throughout like film history, like, going to this would be fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, w- I want to talk more about that in spoilers. Um, what What's funny is I, I think I actually have pretty much the same first two points as you. I think I just worded them <laughs> different, but I, <laughs> I join you in the sin of trust. Um, and I echo a lot of your feelings that I, I quite enjoyed the movie and a lot of it impressed me. And, and there was just, there was a lot of like dabbling with like what is not working for me and i think i maybe narrowed it down so so let me talk like my positives and my negative and my, and my first point i recommend the movie to most people is uh spike lee swings for the fences right out of the gate like first um in- independent movie outside of film school and uh it, it is impressive like how much he's trying to tackle with something that doesn't have a big budget like he he's pretty dang ambitious here even if the movie could look kind of quaint. I think actually under the surface, it's got a lot going on. Uh, reason two, I, I, the progressivism I think is dated now. I've heard a lot of people taking pot shots at it, but it's well-intentioned. And so, you know, that last thing you were saying, I think the movie is worth looking at for what it was doing, especially in its time. And I think some things have even been answered more modernly by Spike Lee himself with the fact that he has, redone this as a tv show on netflix and he has addressed some of the things that he has openly admitted uh he was in the wrong for and he he didn't quite grasp the gravity of what he was doing and he's tried to make amends so progressivism's a little dated here but i i think it warrants a bigger pass than things that like really don't age well sure it's not like it's american pie or something that just feels like right it's trying whether it is completely succeeding by 20 20 standards you know yeah and i mean not to compare apples to um giant pieces of crap 
<laughs> but, you know, it's not Birth of a Nation where it just instantly is like, uh, wow, like you weren't even like on the ball when you came out. Yeah. Like, no wonder yeah. you aged poorly. You weren't even there when you first got here. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I, I kind of feel like the third thing, the thing that's kind of keeping me from cinema musting this is this does feel at all turns like you're watching a film. It's not about enjoying a story to me. And I think the acting is a little bit a part of that, but I think it's also kind of the intent with all these big swings and chances uh, the filmmakers are taking that like, I think the audience here is definitely the cinephiles, the film enthusiasts, the film students, um, the film historians. But but folks kind of sitting down, I think you can get lulled into thinking this is this uh, feminist rom-com. And then I think it, it, in a lot of it, admirable ways bucks those trends. But overall, like I, it just didn't, it wasn't my cinemust. And, and there's a part of me that's kind of hoping if I'm in the wrong here, the audience is going to bail me out. And when we put our polls up on Twitter this Friday, like it, it'll get must. And I'll be like, hey, cool. It, it just, there's a lot of it that wasn't working for me, and we can talk more in spoilers, but there's there's very few folks I don't recommend the movie to. I think anybody who can handle the, the art house aesthetic, who can handle some stilted acting because it's, you know, low budget. Apocryphally, I think there's no second take in the entire movie. Everything is the first shot. <laughs> um, so I think anybody who's, like, intrigued by that wants to give it a shot, because also it's it's real manageable and digestible it's an 86 minute movie uh which makes it more or less than half of birth of a nation and as of right now recording it is widely available on netflix which uh may not be so widely available since they've cracked down on their password sharing so apologies (laughs) if uh, you're a victim of that but if, if you don't have netflix pretty easy to find on your vod platforms for a couple of bucks pretty quick movie night and fairly interesting little piece of art house cinema is kind of like my final stamp it's not stuffy art house though let's like for anybody who hasn't seen it to me <sighs> it could be stuffier yeah i i think there's elements but there are also parts where it's trying to be the antithesis of that kind of stuffy art house i see what you're saying yeah yeah it's it's energetic it's not you know it's not a bergman film yeah fair fair enough there's like there's a couple things maybe but like for the most part you're absolutely right and it's um I wanted to put one of my reasons that it beats Woody Allen because the movie you know, Spike Lee was kind of called, uh, you know, the answer to Woody Allen because of, because of this um, straightforward approach he took to the characters and everything. And mm-hmm. that was kind of one thing I wanted to throw my dig in is like, yeah, it definitely beats that. I would much rather watch this than most Woody Allen movies. That may be fair. I'd, I'd have to watch this again. There's a couple of Woody Allen movies that I take a lot of care to separate art from artists from and then just fully enjoy and think are great i the same but they are all the ones where he really goes high fantasy like my art uh purple rose of cairo's midnight in paris uh, annie hall to an extent like yeah those ones i manhattan can rot in a pit i dread the day we have to do manhattan i don't see why anybody defends <laughs> that movie yeah it's unwatchable yeah, it ages poorly anyways not even that it's just it's a boring crap movie like that we'll save it for the manhattan episode we're talking she's got to have it and i'd love to get diving into spoilers quick so justin before we do that are there any final spoiler free things you'd like to share before we dive in uh no i think we've just about covered it all right well folks if you uh if you haven't seen the movie and you want to check it out again streaming on netflix or you can get it for rental on vod 
we are recommending it to you if you have any interest in filmmaking, if you consider yourself a cinephile, we say go for it. But with that, I want to dive deep and start picking this form and this energy apart. So from here on out, we are talking spoilers for She's Gotta Have It. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jamie, let's settle us between you and me, once for all, man to man. What about me? What about you? You ain't down, so chill. I don't believe you. There's a quarter here, right? Right? I Ed? don't believe this. Tail. Call in the air, okay? You're gonna call in the air? Yeah, Mom. You're gonna call it? You're gonna call it? In the air, right? You can't live without a head. Heads? Tails, you lose. Nola, will you tell these two gentlemen uh, it's time for them to go? My fate decided by the flip of a coin. How much longer must I tolerate these ignorant, low-class ghetto Negroes? Who are you calling an ignorant, low-class ghetto Negro? Right. Please. Lucky few Nola's here because I'm gonna have to hurt you. Oh, I'm shaking. You'd be hurt. Serious. If you don't stop, I'm throwing the whole lot of you out. All right, Justin, seeing as to my eye, we really sync up on like two out of our three points. I thought we could kind of just play word tennis. Um, let's go with our first one. So your first point about why you recommend the movie to most folks. You said it's fascinating to see the energy Spike Lee's bringing with this first film. He has a lot of fun. There's a lot of energy. He's pulling influence from cinema history. And I say he's just, he's swinging for the fences right out of the gate. He just doesn't hold anything back. So let's talk about what we're talking about. What is, what is he doing here that uh, is energetic, is pulling influence, is showing his immersion in cinema history? Like, what was sticking out to you on this point that makes it a recommend? Uh, I mean, there's a bunch. But so we'll just kind of start going through one by one. I think maybe the most obvious thing, or maybe it's... Uh, more obvious to me because um, he happens to be hitting on uh, the French new wave, which is one of my favorite genres of film. It's one of the, the sort of like gateways to art house films and criterion was just really digging what French new wave was doing with like breath breathless and 400 blows and band of outsiders. And probably like the most notable thing when you start watching those films is the like handheld gorilla shot street footage. And um, especially the scenes of the characters going down the street and literally every other person on the street other than our characters is like staring at the camera like what the heck what what is going on here what are these people doing and it's just plain as day in the film um you know breaking any sort of uh like reality <laughs> within the film right any sort of illusion <laughs> that you have um and so that of course is just takes me right back to French New Wave. And we, we were having a fun chat back and forth as we were watching it because I I had asked, like, are you getting Godard vibes here? And you we were like, yes. And and you were saying Breathless and I was saying Band of Outsiders. So we were kind of zeroing in on different things that you, you were focused a lot on the styles and I was focused on the story, but we were both like really tapping into this, which tells me it's definitely not an accident. And Spike Lee definitely knows his stuff. So right out of the gate, he he does want to show... Uh, the influences here. He doesn't just want to make like the the slice of life gritty New York movie. He wants to have some fun with uh, all all the things that he loves from movies. He wants you to know that he's a student of cinema and knows the French New Wave. I did the same thing. The second short I ever made in a film school was a French New Wave style film where I just walked around with a handheld camera and turned it black and white and people looked funny at at the camera and stuff. So it's just what you do. And um, even like the jazz music in those scenes on the street uh, and, and other random times, it's it's like the same style. Like I, I know that his dad did all the music 
and composed it. And I'm wondering if he showed his dad, you know, Breathless and Band of Outsiders and was like, music, jazz music like this. Make me something that sounds like this, please. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and I'll give you a part in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So uh, next up, I think the direct-to-camera monologues takes me to like Woody Allen and like Annie Hall, that sort of thing. Yeah. And maybe even it could be a counter to like Ferris Bueller. Yeah, I I, st- I still got that was still pulling me in with like the Godard vibes of you know a lot of characters will address the fact they're in a film. There's the you know the minute of straight silence thing, and I think that's from Band of Outsiders. It is. Breathless. He's talking to the camera the whole time. Like yeah, I was I was picking all that stuff up. R- real quick, real quick to pause. Like while we're on this list, maybe this could speak to the acting. Did those did those monologues work for you? What's what's your take? Do you have any favorites? Least favorites? Uh, I like his sister a lot. I think it's really good as <laughs> the the roommate. I mean, we're going to get into the acting, so I don't, I don't want to like kind of go down the list too much. I think I think his dad is probably the worst one because I feel like he's just reading off something <laughs> off camera. He definitely has cue cards. Uh, uh, he's about the only one that doesn't work for me. Okay, yeah, maybe we can come back to it with uh, with the acting because I kind of wanted to talk about a a couple folks who nail it and some folks who needed that second take. I felt and and if I can kind of jump, I, I kind of want to move to the next one on the list. Um, that I spotted and was actually a little surprised to see this reference in a Spike Lee movie, which probably speaks more for that I just need to watch more Spike Lee stuff. But this um, this Wizard of Oz reference that we have with tapping the the shoes together and all of a sudden we're in color for this beautiful musical dance sequence. That one really threw me for a loop. I kind of like I went whoa like when it happened. It took me that off guard. Yeah, I mean, not only does it catch you off guard because you you've adjusted to not only black and white desaturated but generally kind of noisy grainy i would call it low quality looking footage low fidelity and mm-hmm. the color is crazy saturated and it's also a very pristine looking film to me like it does not have that same dirty look um, so it's shocking in multiple levels in my opinion in a good way i was pumped yeah, and I mean, Ernest Dickerson, it's it's kind of clear he, I don't know if this was Spike Lee or him or somebody who like pleaded for this, but it's it's very clear, like they put a lot of their money to that and a lot of care and effort. And it, I just, it surprised me because I never pegged from the films of his that I'd seen, I never pegged Spike Lee as a guy who was much of an appreciative for uh, the MGM musical. Right. You know, but but here it was, and I and I appreciated it as like a, I guess to kind of talk about some of the points where I'm talking about how he swings for the fences is is in reading about the book, the movie was made to to kind of perhaps to settle some issues of representation that, you know, Spike Lee wanted to make a movie about African-American folks and he didn't want it to be exploitation. He didn't want it to fit like the what the industry had done with black characters he he kind of wanted it to be a little down to earth and for me it was kind of interesting to see how he balanced that with like the places where he does make it incredibly artsy and and this was kind of one that stuck out to me to say that you know there there was an appreciation here of the quote-unquote the finer things that there were two people who would have a wonderful date sitting on a park bench watching two dancers play out this story which is a a weird story if you look at the lyrics Mm -hmm. It was just so interesting to me, again, to be taken off guard, to be like, wow, he's like going full MGM musical here. He's he's doing Broadway melody right now. 
on the budget that he can do it on, I guess. Yeah. And I think that is the point, or at least that's how I read it is, is like, okay, now I'm going to make, you know, a version that represents black people of this wizard of Oz scene. Like now we have our wizard of Oz scene where we go from black and white to color. And we have a Dorothy tapping her heels, but she's black now. Um, I think this is a little like reclamation, I think, as you said. Yeah. And it, and it is, I, I like that there's, to, to an extent, there's not really like this spin on it. Like it's, it's still full of as much joy and wonder, you know, it, it caps off with the dancers bringing the cake over and she blows out the candles and they have this laugh. Like it's this like yeah. really, it, w- it would be this like 1930s wholesome little cap to this musical number. Sure. Yeah. They have laugh at, you know, corny stuff that you would never laugh at in real life. Like, great. You got <laughs> yeah, me trick yeah. candles. Cool. Isn't yeah. this wonderful? <laughs> yeah, I do love that that sequence though. I think it it surprised me. I didn't know if we were going color from then on out. I didn't know if we were going to black and white. And so, um, and, and mm. I think it is. If I were going to give any of this film the uh, stuffy artsy label, I would say this like prolonged dance sequence mm. felt like that to me definitely up there for sure <laughs> I, th- I feel like that's part of the reason for bringing it to color like it works on a bunch of levels but i think you bring it to this crazy saturated color and then make us watch an entire you know ballet sequence maybe throwing it to color you know catches our attention you know it's like it's like the the cockatoo and citizen kane right mm-hmm. that like <laughs> shocks you back into the scene and you're like whoa wow here we are and then you're hyped for uh, long yeah. enough to endure the scene, I guess. Yeah, and comes about half the halfway point too. So. <laughs> yeah. Um. So another thing that's interesting is these photographic montages that uh, open the film and also break up, I guess, to past time and are show like seasons changing. Um. And then there's also the the really interesting one that shows Jamie's ride to her house. Um. Whenever she calls him in the middle of the night, that's really interesting because it's shots of him but he's distorted and blurred like almost like you know you left the shutter open on the camera when taking the photo and had that motion blur that always always seeming to like distort his face to me that's the section that's like the most the stuff is is, is the the photographic but they they do serve this purpose because the movie opens with them and it seems to be about establishing uh i don't want to call it the cinema verite it's not like totally documentarian but but to say like this is this is the neighborhood these are the people these are the pictures we've taken I th- I think it's his brother even so this, there's like a whole family affair here his dad's doing the soundtrack yeah. his dad's in the movie his sister's in the movie his brother's photography is in the movie and they're capturing you know wh- what this neighborhood looks like at the time and and to yeah. me that was like the first thing that threw me because I was kind of gearing up for like a raunchy comedy and then it opens with <laughs> this thing to be like <laughs> this is Brooklyn and and we're gonna. We're gonna be talking about this place, and these are the people, and you're never gonna see them again. And it took me a while to be like, okay, I gotta like rematch the vibe that the movie is actually gonna be operating on. Yeah, it, it kind of goes with the the sort of interview documentary where we get the people's names and text on the screen, and um, it, you know, it's almost like they're being interviewed. That sort of photo B roll sort of thing. It didn't necessarily feel stuffy to me because it's so fast cut. With like the jazzy music, mm. I I thought it 
worked really well and kind of got us through. And and the other thing that I felt about that was that what it said to me was that this film is like from the get go, totally cool, totally like celebratory of being of its time. And like, maybe it's a little cheesy, but you know, photos like capture a time eternally, right? It frees a moment in time. And I feel like Spike Lee was very much concerned with like, portraying honestly and and like as you said like not in that criminal black exploitation way like uh, a black story with black yeah. characters yeah. Uh, of their time and of their moment he doesn't shy away from talking about the Knicks and the Celtics and Larry Bird you know <laughs> which most people don't know you know the Knicks and the Celtics and Larry Bird like the rivalry at that time and like the vernacular and um he doesn't shy away from any of that in, in any of his movies really but um, it just kind of seemed like a personal statement of like, of like, this is 1986, um, Brooklyn, and this is our story. This is our experience. Here it is. Doesn't matter if it holds up in 10 years. Yeah. And I mean, it works well to establish their intent on the story that they want to tell. So that's well said. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Last, uh, last, what about, what else about the form here? Uh, there's some jump cuts, which is more French New Wave. Like I, I, I like he's playing around with the editing. I think the the place that I saw the most, or the one that I can remember where he's really jump cutting, is um, when Greer and Nola are having sex, and um, he's got that like overhead shot, and yeah. he keeps just like jump cutting them around the bed. Yeah, to make it seem uh, in like increasing at increasing rates, going back and forth. And <laughs> yeah. it's fun. I I don't know that if that's supposed to be funny or if I'm supposed to like really dive into the meaning of all that, I didn't dive into the meaning of all that or why? Cause I thought it was mostly done to be funny. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what it's supposed to be. I, I wondered like, are you just trying to play up like the, the frenetic energy of, of the sex they're having? Like I, I was kind of yeah stuck on it too. Is he trying to portray passage of time of like, look how long yeah and incredible this, this is like, <laughs> because I mean, that is that character's place, right? Like we haven't really talked much, of, and I'm sure we will more in the next section, but it is about her juggling three different guys. And, and you know, they say so much in the film that uh, it's not that she's needs three complete guys. It's that they each represent a piece of a guy she would like, and none mm-hmm. of them are a whole. Yeah. <laughs> and that's his, um, that's his place is being incredibly in shape, um, I assume attractive for the time, <laughs> um, and uh, I think they're all supposed to be good and bad is the implication. But yes, that is one. As an in shape man, I am assuming he has more stamina. Yeah, I, I maybe like after the, this discussion, we can kind of talk about like what what each of them brings to the table because I think that's one of the more fun things to pick apart about the story is is to ask of the character of Nola and maybe Spike Lee as a screenwriter, like why these three guys? Because I, I really love how the movie kind of balances them all. And lets you see like the different elements of them to make you see like, I think this is why she keeps him around. And, um, the, the beautiful synthesis that is that Thanksgiving scene where they're all together and you kind of get to see the ways in which they bring their own thing, but it's very much at odds with like what the other two bring. So their, their strengths become the thing piss the other two guys off <laughs> and that that scene is is pretty impeccable i adored it 
Yeah, I love it. It's uh, probably my favorite scene in the movie, and um, I, I think that's where like Spike Lee's ability as a writer or, or his structure really pays off, um, and what he's what he's doing by having these sort of like three disjointed stories, and then they finally culminate and come together at that scene, and it's hilarious. And that's to me that the movie. Uh, for a scene of four people sitting at a table, there's no real action. They're not getting up and walking around that I recall. They're just sitting there. Oh, but that scene is just wonderful. Yeah, it's just it's just moves. a bunch of bickering and Scrabble playing. And Spike Lee himself as as Mars is um is wonderful in that scene. I think he's he's carrying he's carrying that scene, I think, and like really driving everything that's going on and the energy of it too. So kudos to him. That's one of the scenes where I actually think everybody brings it. You know, other characters in the movie who I think um, don't really bring it. I, I like how everybody does in that scene. I like how Jamie kind of runs with being like the the favorite in his eyes because he's asked to like slice yeah. up the turkey or whatever. I like how Greer is just like <laughs> so indignified. He has to like be in the same room as these guys. I like how Mars is embarrassed that he doesn't have a job but he's like trying to use his humor to play it off like i, I think everybody's yeah. in pretty top form there yeah yeah and i don't know if that you want to segue into the acting let's do it yeah i think it's like the smaller one of the smaller pieces of discussion because i don't i don't know necessarily how much there is to dive into it but this scene is where i do feel great about everybody and and i mean maybe part of the reason is because you have four people playing off of each other and uh, so many other scenes in the movie are uh, Nola and one of the guys, right? Or Nola and Opal, or Nola and her ex-roommate. It's a, a lot of two-person scenes. And scenes that kind of, not that they're carbon copies of each other, but are constantly kind of getting at the same idea that they're like, specifically with the men, it's like, this is why she's with them, and she, she loves having sex with them, and there's, always, there's this other element of their personality and so you get to see that and then they in some way or form bring up like, why don't I move in with you or why don't you dump all those other guys? And so th that that scene kind of goes on repeat mm -hmm. with different characters. So I think why the Thanksgiving scene works so well is that it's not repeating that structure. It's finally about like getting everybody in the same room and kind of just seeing how that plays out, seeing as they've all had the same conversation. Why don't you dump those bozos and get with me? Yeah finally having it out and then the, the story does move on from there because i mean you're right it is um, a bit of the same every time granted with different characters and i think it's entertaining enough but i i think as individual actors like the two people scenes um tend to be the ones where it, you know i struggle the most like i don't i i like nola i think she's an interesting character i think her performance most of the time is pretty decent but she's also just not a not the greatest actress to me. And the same with like Mars and Jamie for me. They're both, they're both kind of okay. Serviceable most of the time. But when you get all four of them and there's the, the energy, like I do think Greer is great. <laughs> I think he nails his role, even though he's the he's, least yeah, likable character the in the whole douche. movie. Oh my gosh. I, I, I don't know how you feel because I, I think to a degree, all three of the guys are kind of tool bags. Like I don't, there's, there's not one that I was like, Ooh, I hope she picks him at the end, but it's definitely not Greer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from like the outset, you're like that man, forget that guy. No, but that, you know, like, um, 
Jamie and Mars, you're like, yeah, I don't, yeah, okay. There's there's some positives and some negatives. Like, we'll see where this goes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if I had to choose one for the like her to end up with, obviously we haven't touched on this necessarily, but she doesn't end up with anybody, which I think is great. Um, that it makes sense to me. But I think if I had to choose one, it would be Mars, even though there's a lot wrong with him. Like he wears his shoes um, in the bed, <laughs> if you will. And that's wild to me. Um, but I just think he's just the most, I don't know. He's not, uh, Greer is like projecting uh, all of this like ideal on her. And maybe they all are to an extent, but he like like a physical ideal onto her and like thinking she's so lucky to be with me and like, she doesn't deserve that. And then Jamie is putting her on a pedestal. Uh, she's the one. She's the one person for me. And that's his whole thing, how he's introduced. is talking about how there's one person for everybody. And if you're lucky enough to meet him, you got to hold on. And Mars, even when he gets broken up with, is pretty chill and cool about it. Yeah. And I think they're the most right for each other. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, Mars has been shown to move on. You know, they have the scene where he calls and wishes her happy birthday and has to come over, and she's just like, it's late, I'm tired, let's go. And he just instantly was like, man, forget her. And he, Roxanne, what are you up to? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, he's the most like Nola, really. And he's, yeah, he's funny and charming. I think he's, I think he wins the Thanksgiving scene. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So, Jamie's not working for you on an acting level. No, I I think I get it, and I I think that's a part of his like uh, characterization is because he's in the outset at least he I think is set up as uh, the traditional rom com like he's Mister Right he's kind of the tender hearted one he's the poet even though his poetry <laughs> sucks and he he has you know the the pickup yeah. line which I I really like that scene it's it's weird once it like reveals the rest of it that you find out like oh this was born out of like them stalking each other on the streets but that you know the line he says like i don't want to risk not seeing you again whatever you want to do i'll do wherever you want to go i'll take you will you see me Mm -hmm. and it's like oh especially after that marathon of yeah hilarious and terrible pickup lines that all the guys say straight into the camera oh yeah that's really fun but yeah I, i think like at least at the outset the thing that kind of has to put Janie in competition and not be the clear winner is that he's so deadpan. And then as we'll see, there's a lot of good reasons later for mm-hmm. him to not be uh, the forerunner or the front runner. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's almost boring personality wise, but I think we pretty quickly, this, this scene with uh, Opal, who's uh, the lesbian character <laughs> when he's just like, uh, she's Nola's sick. And he's like, well, I'm here now. Bye. You can leave. Like, dude. And doesn't he say, like, he, he winds up saying some of the most bigoted yeah. stuff, like, even worse than Greer, like, doesn't he say some things like, you're, you, you've always seemed like a cool-headed, like, level person, I never would have thought you were gay, or something like that? He's, he says, you're so, something to the effect of, like, you're so pretty, I'm surprised you're gay. That's and right, like, he, was, he was talking about her looks, yeah, and she, she, and calls she throws back, it. yeah, like, it, what no, somebody looks like has nothing to do with that, yeah. To his credit, he he immediately is like, "Well, I guess you're right." Yeah, <laughs> there's there's like this, uh, like Pacino, De Niro, and Heat level <laughs> to them. Like we're not so different, you and I. Yeah, yeah, 
And and I think that speaks to my point about the movie's progressivism that I, I think that scene just like really plays like a little too simple now. But I think in 86, that was kind of a radical thing to be putting in a movie was was for a gay character to outright say things. And, and I like, um, again, her opening monologue, I think we could tear to pieces now with how fluid we've come to see the sexual spectrum. But, you know, her line about nobody's born gay or straight, you know, you you have the capability within you, like you, you experiment around and make a choice. And I was kind of like, this is kind of cool for a movie from 86 to be laying this out. I definitely wasn't expecting that. It's a bit bold. I like it. Yeah. I mean, I think it is the idea that like nobody's a hundred percent gay or straight and we're all on a spectrum somewhere. It is pretty progressive, I, I think, but I, her intention, the motivation I get from her ultimately is that she thinks that Nola can just change Right. She is, right. she's like, oh, well, you know, Nola just needs to try it. I just need to convince her that, you know, having sex with a man is musty and gross. Terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's and she's super aggressive. And I think this is kind of like a, a knock against the movie, but I also kind of give it points that like it didn't it didn't put like the gay character on a pedestal that she is like as aggressive and kind of like single minded as the three men that it's you know Nola, just everybody wants to be with Nola and there's a part of that's like no you had you had this character who was gay and you had this chance for positive representation but then you make her just really sexually aggressive but at the same time it was like hey you gave her equal treatment with all your other characters i don't know how to feel about this sure and and maybe that's unfortunate i think it it's there for service for Nola's character right like it's there to help bring her to like well, even everybody I see just seems to want to like not be here for what I want. You know, nobody seems to care what I want. You know, right? And, yeah. And I don't know if do you want to get into the um. I guess we're into it, aren't we? Let's get into it. The sort of female sexuality and its progressivism and stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're we're there. I like that the film doesn't seem to pass judgment on Nola for her like sexual appetite. You know. Yeah, yeah. And that's maybe like the most progressive thing, the thing that I you know, found really endearing about the film, whether it missteps in places. Is, uh, I like that she's a character who doesn't really seem to have any problem juggling three men. It's the three men who do, and she's even kind of juggling this lesbian character who wants to get with her too, even though she doesn't go all the way with her. And And the film is like, hey, she's normal you know the therapist kind of spells it out you know that that scene when she goes to see her but even before that i felt that the film was this is this is just her uh, all the characters judge her for it but the film does not yeah and i i like speaking of like that repeating episode that kind of shows up that i was mentioning i i do like how it characterizes nola because she they say early on like she's she's honest to a fault like she never lie and you constantly see her that she's she's open about everything. She tells them all, like, yeah, I'm with these two other guys. They know each other's names. They even, like, seem to know each other before the Thanksgiving thing because Mars talks about what's wrong with Greer and Jamie. Like, they have specific things. And and even, you know, when Mars calls late at night, you know, and she hangs up, and you, you have that beat where you think, oh, it's a rom-com. She's going to make up some lie. And, you know, Jamie says, like, who was it? And she just goes like, it was Mars. <laughs> she tells him exactly yeah. what he wanted. And she's like, yeah, I'm here with you. Like, what's the big deal? And, and yeah, I like that she, she's open. She's honest. And I also just, I really love to speak to 
kind of the movie has a lot of heart and a couple laughs at the same time that the specifically the three guys are constantly trying to you know get at the heart of the issue like why is nola this way and then kind of like the most obvious one is mars doing his speech like i think she had a bad relationship with her dad and smash cut to her dad and he's like she had a great childhood we were very supportive we love her my wife is still here she's just at work like there is music in our house and it cuts back to nola and she like corroborates it all she's like yeah and i you know someday i want to have a family like i i enjoyed my childhood and i want five rusty butt boys i think she calls them and i, I just love it every turn that like when everybody's like this is why she is you know this is you know what she's deficient in that the movie just instantly will have some kind of episode to say like no that's not it. And it's not really even a problem. You just seem to have a problem with it. Yeah. You're, you're trying to solve and, and figure out a non-existent problem. Yeah. Best exemplified, I think, the funniest smash cut in the whole movie when the therapist has has the speech about, you know, some some behavior. I, I can't remember the monologue, but she says some behaviors get mixed up with addiction. I think your friend, if you're choosing to call him that, is mixing up a sexual or a, he- a healthy sexual appetite with an addiction. And um, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. Smash cut to him working out. Like, what does he say? Just like women doctors or something like that. Yeah. Just like, basically like, what does a, what does a doctor know? <laughs> yeah. What does a, what does a female doctor know? I don't need Which a I think he's telling me something's wrong. He's the one that sent her there. And then to be like, oh, well, they didn't give me the answer I want. So obviously that place was stupid. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, his gag, his gag in particular, Greer's always seems to be, making like the bulls machismo ultimatum that entry backfires and then he backpedals because constantly he's like i need your answer now are you coming with me he's like no well you don't have to answer right now you take a couple weeks or or when yeah. he's like he's like you need to do something about your sex addiction and she's like well i'll quit cold turkey and you're number one on my list he's like well let's not do anything rash like quit cold turkey. like he constantly yeah. has that thing where he, like, he throws something down and it backfires instantly and he can't even support it for five seconds yeah, big bold talk, it, it, and even one of the first uh, scenes that we have with him, and he's he's in her apartment, and he, uh, of course, he says the, if you ever get fat, I'm gonna leave you, I'm only yeah. with you because you're fine. Line, um, he basically berates her and like warns her against ever getting fat, and then we cut to them in the restaurant, and he's like, why you gotta order that salad? Like, yeah. what's what's that salad about? <laughs> why don't you have a steak like me? And it's like, dude. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Nick signals there, which is is hilarious. And I just, I think Greer's just one of the best, like, pure entertainment characters in this movie. Oh yeah, he's he's just wonderful to watch. Be awful, uh, even when he when he she breaks up with him and he just storms off. Says, I'm gonna go find a white woman. I yes, think it's, it's really funny. <laughs> Can I ask, or I guess talk about? I'm 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 pretty high on the movie right now. I want to talk about something that actively bugs me. I think the movie really bungles its ending with that fake out happy ending with Jamie. I think that is like trying too much to go into the traditional rom-com formula just to immediately back out because it's been setting up, you know, she breaks up with Greer and she breaks up with Mars. So you're set up to think like, oh, she's going to get with Jamie. And then she has this speech where she's like, I do want to be with you and I want to be celibate. And uh." but then the next scene is just her saying like, it didn't work out. And I would have just preferred if the lead up was like, she's breaking up with Greer. She broke up with Mars. So she's with Jamie. No, she's breaking up with him too. She's, she's, she's not a one man woman. Like she can still have that monologue in the end, which I like, but I really just, that last scene with Jamie rubs me the wrong way for, for hinting that 
he's the one and she's going to choose him. And and one, you're like, no, um, we've had a horrific rape scene with him. So he's not the guy. And also, like, you're just going to undercut it with a line of dialogue the next scene. Like, yeah, I mean, I I understand. I totally get it. Like, I, I think it doesn't quite work to have that moment where she goes back and then just literally cut to the next scene where she's like, so anyways, it didn't work out. It's like, no, there's a whole, there's a whole story there, a whole scene, like a whole rise and fall of you guys trying another time and seeing how that doesn't work out. You know, that is not very satisfying as an audience to skip over, you know, mm-hmm. um, not mm-hmm. that I would have liked it in there. Cause I, I love one of the things that's great about this movie is the link that comes and goes um, and yeah. doesn't ever really slow down. Um, but for me, when I'm, when I'm watching that scene, whenever she's walking away and he calls her and she turns and goes back, I'm saying, no, 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 don't like to me, I'm watching that knowing it's every step she's taking every like, and it's in slow-mo. So it takes forever for her to get away. It's in fake slow-mo too. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever. I get it. Film is expensive. Yeah. And, um, (laughs) What I think is actually really kind of genius about that shot is that it's a hero shot as she's walking away, you know, because she's broken up with him. And without cutting, without doing anything, that turn and her going back after he calls her just immediately turns into like impending doom. Like, no, please don't. All in the same (laughs) shot. And like the (laughs) slow-mo is suddenly dreadful versus heroic. Yeah. And I think that's really, I think that's really cool. But, uh, you know, I, it is a little unsatisfying the way we resolve that. Um, but it never felt like, oh, there's a happy ending. She got with the guy who she should have been with. Like it was always from the moment that, that the, you know, the rape scene happens, which we haven't really talked about. Um, but from that moment, it's like, nope, not him. Actually, I, don't yeah. know, I was I was on the not him bandwagon from the moment he had the scene where she was sick and he comes in and he's trying to kick the uh, Opal, the lesbian character out. Yeah, he was such a that was rot- jerk to her. Yeah, I I think I maybe was rooting for him for a bit, just because I'm a I'm a milk toast guy, so I'll root for the guy that maybe most resembles me. But yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and I know, I know Spike Lee has, I think he's on record as saying that he regrets the rape scene. Yeah, it's it's like the big thing he's zeroed in on. To, to, and I mentioned it earlier in the spoiler free section but yeah he's he's openly come out and say like i regret it i was immature i did not treat this with the gravitas it deserved because it's traumatic it's terrible and i you know i think that informed him going into doing the show you know, he, he kind of mm-hmm. wanted to fix some of those mistakes which i was like good for you like he he addressed it he wasn't you know trying to be like ah, you know, i was young and dumb what are you gonna do so i, th- I thought that was you know pretty good to it to at least acknowledge like this i would do this over if i could because it's also, I don't, I don't know. At, at that point, I'm, I'm really starting to lose investment with the, any of the relationships because the movie seems to careen towards this message that I'm all for that she's not a one man woman and she's not going to wind up with any of them. So in that like back 25 minutes where they're still kind of trying to push like who's, who's she going to pick? Who's she going to wind up with? I really just started to lose interest in it. And kind of the thing that helped me realize that was when the movie loses interest in it and um, Jamie and Mars meet up in the middle of uh, Jamie's confessional on the street. And, and you mentioned earlier, they just start like talking about 
Larry Bird in the NBA and they just go off on this like diatribe for a second. I was really enjoying that. And I thought to myself, it's not really good that I'm enjoying <laughs> being pulled away from the story in this weird random direction. Because I'm not even a sports guy. Well, I, what's funny enough is that it's both characters that they're most likable is dealing yeah. with each other and not, <laughs> not necessarily. I mean, I guess they are kind of talking. Well, they're not talking crap on her. They're just Spike Lee saying she stood him up a bunch and Jamie said that's never happened to me. But when they get into basketball and stuff and they just, you know, she's not, they're not fighting over her. They actually get along really well and have like yeah. <laughs> surprisingly good chemistry. And that's another saving grace of the Thanksgiving scene is I think that's where that relationship starts to blossom. They're just like, okay, like we can't stand Greer, but like in another life, oh, in a yeah. different situation, we could, we could actually get along. And it's really nice to see that come back again. Yeah. 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 It, it is nice. So going to the ending, you know, Nola, she tries to settle, she doesn't. And then she gets back in the bed. And I kind of wanted to talk about uh, how do you feel about those sort of bookended opening shots, not counting the opening picture montage. And I think the, some of the shots, but like the, our our introduction and our ending with Nola in the sheets. Um, I don't, do you read that as circular or do you read that as just two different moments? Like she's in the same bed, but a very changed person. I, I think two different moments because one is getting out of the bed and one is getting into it. A, a quick um, sidetrack is props to the DIY production department. Cause that's that shrine that altar she has at the bed with all the candles is, is pretty striking from the get go. Mm hmm. And really fits like her character and like the tone, her story setting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that I felt circular. I was kind of looking at it. It it kind of came to focus me at the end that you know the the whole point of the story is she keeps bringing these guys to bed. She keeps you know she can't and she mentions she can't have sex except in her own bed. And so I kind of wondered if like a part of the f- closing shot was to sell us on like she is okay like on her own like she she's not dependent she doesn't got to have it i guess you could say to be like mm-hmm. she she's an she's not a one man woman she's her own person there's nothing wrong with her they're not passing judgment and this is just kind of like where she's at and this is where we meet her figuratively and literally you know and i guess that's kind of where i had i don't know how what was your read on it well i think there's two different ways to read it and maybe the one that's more true to me is you know that she has changed because i think the the first the first time we see her in bed we just see a mound of sheets wiggling around and uh maybe this says something about me but my instant reaction was okay we have two people under the sheets getting busy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then sheets come off it's just her and she gets out of bed and then at the end, she's dumped everybody. She's on her own. She gets back into bed and lays down, but she's very still. Yeah, no, long, no longer restless. Yes. So They've set her peace, so she's at peace. Yeah, there's some sort of satisfaction, some sort of equilibrium she's <laughs> found, at least for a while, right? Because as she says herself, the, the celibacy thing doesn't last long. <laughs> um, when she tries it. was a it. wild move in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, then, but at the same time, She's still the same in terms of like the grand sense of the movie being about her sexuality and her desire for multiple men and not being satisfied with one. I don't think she's in a different place. So I guess I could listen to arguments that that it is circular, you know, that we kind of 
she gets back in the bed and at some point she's going to wake up and you know she's going to have that appetite which is perfectly fine and she's going to go out and meet other people and so in some ways i don't feel like she changed too too much it's maybe maybe it's temporary maybe it's somewhere in the middle well, she's not she's not a character that necessarily has to undergo a lot of growth because as we've been pointing out kind of the the overt message of the story is that the problem is not really with her there's she doesn't do a lot of damage to anything except these guys egos yeah yeah nobody gets hurt ex- except for the guys who don't listen to her honesty and try to you know make her into something she's not and make her into despite her being honest about what she is which to my first point this this is kind of the first thing that struck me like for for spike lee to say like okay i'm scrounging together some money i got i gotta make something pretty low budget but what what do i want to do for my first professional project out of school and and for him to say like oh i want to make a movie that's about you know a bunch of men trying to mold this woman into you know their ideal version of a woman and, and having her say screw all that like i thought was like that that is not where i would go i would have stuck very comfortable to like what i knew about like my home turf and i i to be a little presumptuous based on the way some of the writing is specifically like things that the female characters do i don't think spike lee is totally in touch with the feminine side of things but yeah i I kind of admire like oh like you went for it you didn't just do you know something i I don't even want to give an example because i don't want to be like presumptuous to be like this is like what a uninspired first-time filmmaker would make a story about but th- this was not what I expecting, and I know he he kind of went for it. And the colorization book they they mentioned he kind of like did an unofficial survey of a bunch of female friends. Some of the questions he mentions are weird. I think it said mm-hmm. he asked a bunch of female friends like, "Do you think you can OD on sex?" That was like part of his research for the screenplay. <laughs> but it was if like I'd, you know he if went I tried out that there, in college, did... it wouldn't have worked. The people would have yeah. called the cops on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like you know for. for as it goes, I guess you could say he quote unquote did research. Um, like he he went artistic with it. He didn't just make something that looked cheap. Like yeah, he shot it on black and white. But even I think some of the framing here looks really good. I think Ernest Dickerson, uh, cinematographer, has a lot of great shots of really mm-hmm. simple setups. Like you said, most of the stuff is usually just two characters talking to each other, whether they're sitting at the table or in bed or whatever. But I think that it's not a gross movie to look at i think it's quite beautiful so i already forgot like what sent me off on that because we were talking about the feminism angle but it just it impressed me that that was what spike lee wanted to go for on this first movie he didn't kind of want to make his bones on something that was a little easier a little more in his wheelhouse that he was like now the time is now Mm -hmm. let's go for it which i feel is indicative of my personal reaction to a lot of his films that they don't always work for me because he seems to be swinging for the fences a little too hard and few things really connect a hundred percent. And I think that's what makes do the right thing. So special is everything works and do do the right thing. But that's also been his charm. That's, that's his authorial voice is uh, not everything works. And and sometimes the acting is very stilted and he doesn't really give a damn that you're aware you're watching a film. You know, that's, that's his style of filmmaking, and it's all on full display here. Yeah, that's what I love about the the earlier stuff too. And and he does that in some places, and you know, uh, the newer stuff that I've seen with his, he kind of does that in small moments, 
Whereas I feel like this film and do the right thing. And um, they're like, that seems to be like the whole mantra of the movie. It's like, you're watching a movie. And that's one of the things that I love about French new wave is just sort of like, um, you know, to use a more modern day term than was around during the French new wave, but it's very like punk rock of them Mm -hmm. of like, I don't care. We're going to, I don't care if the camera gets bumped and jiggles. Like that's not important. Like, or I'm going to have the characters look into the camera or people on the streets are going to look into the camera as we're filming because like you're watching a movie and we want you to know it. We're going to talk about movies. We're going to, um, you know, reference movies. Um, and the people who get it, get it. And I, I think that's really cool. Like, just a, just a really fun attitude. It's why, for better or worse, uh, Kevin Smith with Clerks, uh, I think, is a pretty great movie, despite all its flaws. That was the movie I was thinking of when I said I don't want to call anybody about it. That's what I was thinking of. Kevin Smith's like, oh, I... I've worked in this store. Like, maybe, let me make a movie about just like dudes hanging out the way I'm used to. And yeah. I love Clerks. I'm excited to talk about Clerks. I am not throwing shade at Clerks, but you know, Spike Lee had the chance to make that type of movie, and he said, "No, I want a bit more of a challenge." Yeah, yeah, he went outside of himself more, and it's kind of like Kevin, what Kevin Smith did with like chasing Amy. Um, yeah, and probably maybe some equally flawed ways, uh, but that's a whole other discussion about that movie. <laughs> um, yeah. I think Man, I, having all... been in, sorry, uh, having been in film school, you know, I think you either get the thing that is like so close to somebody that it's like, and they're not that interesting of a person, you know, um, that you're talking about. Like maybe people could go a little too close. And then the other thing you do is get like people going off into a world they know nothing about. Like these early filmmakers, like I'm going to make, uh, you know, I'm from small town East Texas, but I'm going to make a, a movie about a, a prostitute in the big city. Right, right you know like what do you do you know this world like and it's just really like inauthentic and stuff so that was was another thing because this movie does give off some vibes like some of the acting i think it's just like triggered me right back to watching some student films um <laughs> with questionable acting in them and um <laughs> the the thing about this movie that carries it is that intention like the fact that he is tackling such an interesting subject matter and I, you know, I don't, I don't want to bag on the acting too, man, but like, I'm, I'm all for the punk rock thing. And I know the money was tight. I, I know they were maxing out credit cards and everything, but man, they needed a second take on some of these. Like, sure. I, and, and to, to take it a step beyond just like, oh, I don't like the stilted acting. Cause you know, whatever. But like, there's a part of me that considered for a minute, like, what if it's on purpose? What if it's the intent? And it made me think of, um, a director you and I have never talked about, but your co-host Mike and I got to talk about Robert Bresson when he came on to talk about Ohazar Balthazar. Mm-hmm. And um, on that episode, I talked about how I can't stand this style, that he he directs the acting out of his actors, that he makes them run through the scene a hundred times till they deliver things so deadpan that no inflection exists, that it's just the words, so the audience just has the words to interpret. And so there was a part of me that's like, is, th- is this another, you know, Spike Lee knows his stuff. Is this what he's trying to ape? And I'm just like, ultimately for me, and this is where it comes down to my personal preference and my vote to put it in Cinetrust is like, I, it doesn't matter to me if that's the intent because I hate it as a stylistic choice. And in a, in a movie that's supposed to be about human interaction and authenticity and love and sex, give me some feeling. Don't freaking stare at the camera, Spike Lee, and go, you ask me, the reason she was doing all that boning, what? Boning. 
having sex. Anyways, yeah. Like, take two, man. Do a second take. Yeah. Once more with feeling. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't know if that's like to your your third point uh, way back. That it feels like you're watching a film, not enjoying a story. Is it that sort of thing that is just you always feel like you're watching a film to dissect it as a film? Yeah, and I mean this. This is a critique. I always feel scuzzy because it can kind of just like boil down to when you happen to watch a movie. I'm I'm pretty maxed out on work and things right now, as as folks can tell by the fact that I haven't released a cinema in months. Um, you know, there's there's a time and a place where you feel like watching the movie that is homework, that is like analyze the film, and there's times where you want the film to tell you a story. And and again, you know, I want to take the movie on its own terms. But I, I, I'll just kind of repeat that last thing I said is like, there's a lot of like vulnerable human emotion at this. It doesn't seem like the right story to me to play that kind of game. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I want a little capital A acting, I guess, for lack of a better word. I don't want anybody to overdo it, but I, I want something a little less deadpan. Um, but I mean, you know, none of it was like... I, I can't point to the thing that was the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't like there was one scene where I was finally like, I'm done. My brain can't handle anymore. I just want to watch a movie about a woman juggling three lovers. It it was just kind of like this accumulation of, it's not what I wanted out of this type of story. And I respect the ways in which it's not. But for my potential cinemast vote, it, it just wasn't quite there because I was starting to get exhausted trying to analyze like, is this to a point or is this just the budget? You know, like what's the, what's the line here? Yeah. Or is it just Spike Lee playing around, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Is, and that's the thing. Like he clearly knows his stuff. So there's a lot of me that's like, maybe he's, he means it. Maybe there's a point here, but you know, I, sure. I got through the movie twice and I enjoyed it, but didn't have clear answers. And I look forward to revisiting it in years to come. I, I it's another thing is I feel bad, you know, the, I've watched the movie twice now, but it's it's been within a week since my first watch, so I'm still processing a lot of it and its impact. I I mean to call a spade a spade. We we mentioned this on the the Birth of a Nation episode when we talked about representation to to call like it is. I I know I'm not the target audience here. I'm a I'm a white cis male, um, mm-hmm. so you know a, a lot of these things that the movie is about, uh, you know the, the the freedom of women to choose their own sexual appetites, do what they want to do with their own bodies for, for accurate and authentic representation of African-Americans that doesn't delve into exploitation. You know, these are things I appreciate, but like, I don't have skin in the game, so I don't want to go too far in being like huffy and saying like, it doesn't check off the boxes I wanted to check off because like, it's not about me and this movie. I've, yeah. I, you know, listening to some podcasts and reading, you know, the essay in a thousand one movies, like, this was a, a big deal, and it's a par- we never mentioned this. It's a profitable movie. The budget's like one hundred seventy five thousand, but it made over seven million, so it did extremely well. So clearly, this spoke to to people, and I'm fine being the person that it didn't speak to because I know it's not about me. Yeah, I, I'm also a male. I'm half white, half Hispanic. Um, I I lean straight, I would say, and um. You know, it's not for me either. So I think what I am interested in and the the thing that I I neither want to heap a ton of praise for the film for being progressive or say 
it had problems. Like I'm just, I guess I'm just not quite sure. So like, I would be curious on like, you know, the female uh, perspective or the black perspective, the black female perspective on is, is there a male gaze quality of the filmmaking? I'm not sure. Spike Lee casts himself as Mars and gives himself the scene where he gets to, you know, uh, suck on her nipples and lick her belly right. button. Um, right. And are those shots uh, objectifying? You know, I, I don't, I don't have the perspective for that. So there is like a caveat I did want to kind of add to the episode is that I am happy to give my opinion on what I think, but I'm also very open to the fact that I got it completely wrong in terms of progressivism. And ditto, I would love to see this come out on, on the votes or even just folks messaging us on social media, because I, from what I hear just in like show research, it is a mixed bag that there are people who are like, these sex scenes are actually very tastefully done. And then there's people that also acknowledge like that exact same move you just mentioned, like, yeah, you're the director and you give yourself the close up sucking on a woman's nipple. Like, oh, there's a lot of mixed emotions going mm-hmm. on here. Yeah. To be honest, and this will kind of be like my last thought is I, I really didn't know the movie we were getting into. And and I wonder if I had, if I would have like said, like, maybe we should pick something else. But, you know, here we are and we've yeah. committed. But yeah, like I said, I went in thinking like. It's going to be like wild, raunchy, hilarious. And and for it to be this clear statement on African-Americans, we're tired of being seen in movies. We're tired of being exploited. We're tired of being typecast into stereotypes. We just want to be seen. We want to tear down all of these images and labels, as Nola says, um, to just be like authentically us. And that was not the movie I knew we were, I thought we were getting into. But in a way, like, that makes this episode so much the more rewarding to have had that, like, hard left turn. Mm-hmm. Because we'll, ha- we'll have our chances for movies like that. There's, ton- there's tons of yeah. rom-com, even raunchy movies that are going to fit that mold. Yeah. Soon enough, we'll do another of these episodes over a, a movie, just by the numbers, more than likely made by white people about white people. Right. <laughs> so it, it was a good pick. Again, I, I appreciate us going for it over something that was a little more mainstream not that i'm not excited for those ones but this one as has been evidenced by kind of my incoherent babbling at points like this has challenged me and i quite enjoyed Mm -hmm. it yeah and i think deep down you're avoiding how i've always been telling you next time i come on we're doing a fellini movie absolutely i I keep trying to (laughs) get you to do it and you won't go down that road with me i don't know why let's let's get it on air next episode with justin herring Damn it, we'll do a Fellini movie. Fine. Uh, you heard it here, people. Ugh. Write it down. Anyways, <laughs> anything else you'd like to say about it, She's Gotta Have It? No, I don't think so. I think we covered it pretty well. All right, well, well before we're out, um, we do like to give some double feature recommendations, some movies that share some connective tissue, what, whatever that might look like to us. So, Justin, if it's, a, if it's a movie night and you you have a, a slick 86 minutes with She's Gotta Have It, how are you going to fill the rest of that movie night? Well, I'm keeping it um, on, a, on a similar theme in terms of this sort of kind of sexy, kind of romantic drama that's very artfully done um, with a, another favorite film of mine. And I, actually, this is maybe one of my favorite films. Like um, We did our top 10 episode back during COVID where we kind of each gave our top 10 films. And this was very close to breaching my top 10. Like it was probably in the, the teens, you know, uh, but the film is, uh, Alfonso Cuaron's E2 Mama Tambien. Um, have you seen this movie? 
I have this. This is one I struggle with. Um, Adam St. John down a thousand one by one. He he tries to get me into this one all the time because I I I like the movie. It's it's not my favorite Quarons, <laughs> but sure. But but talk to me. Maybe you can get me back to it even sooner. You can double team it with him. Why you two mama también? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it t- tackles like a sexuality uh, in a progressive sort of way, uh, and I think the the thing that would maybe counter the vibe of she's got to have it where I think you've said, you know, you feel like you're watching a movie. First of all, the performances in this movie are great. Um, mm. The film has a budget. It, it, it looks wonderful. I think it's, yeah. this is one of the yeah. best looking films I've ever seen. Um, I think it's great. And it's shot in a very natural way as Quarren tends to do. And um, I think you, this one, you can really just get sucked into the story and um, love the characters and not have to be distracted um, by as much artsy filmmaking with the the sort of like avant-garde, low-budget, jump-cut editing, uh, people talking into camera, um, you don't have that. You have a narrator is like kind of the most French yeah, new very wave. Very long extended takes. Yeah. Um, I think you just get sucked into this one and just enjoy it as like a, as a story m- more so. But, but keep the sort of, you know, it could be a date night movie, sort of sexy vibe going. Yeah. Definitely. That's and that's and we didn't talk about the she's gotta have it. Um I wanted I wanted to make this joke. On the sideways episode, I had made this joke that like there's never been a movie like more geared to the things I'm not into because like I I, I don't drink, so like wine is not me. I, I don't like golf. I don't get I, like I'm a monogamous guy, like and, and then it was like she's gotta have it was like taking it to the next level of like, oh it's not just hobbies you don't like. It's like you you don't you're not you're not a part of the female experience. You're you're still monogamous, so you don't get the polyamorous angle. Um, so and Itu Mama Tambien is like another thing that I'm just super bashful with nudity. It's not like I can't handle it or I think it's evil. I just get super awkward. And that's honestly been a part of my problem with it, is I'm just always like a little red in the face. But I really need to give it a revisit, especially with how much Quaron's just been rocking it lately. Yeah, I mean, if it's that experience of, you know, that, I don't want to call it secondhand embarrassment, that's not what it is, but just like, oh, what is the other person thinking of me that we're watching this movie together? For better or worse, that feeling can come come up, like, in both good and bad ways, right? Like, that sometimes, like, I've seen movies and I'm like, man, I invited this person to watch this movie with me, I've never seen it before, and this scene is really bad, so, like, I hope they don't think I'm really into this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, watch it by yourself. Yeah. I, I watch most of the stuff alone. I still get bashful. Oh, okay. Because who might who might walk in? Well, pull the shades. No, it's good. Lock I'm a, the door. Or I'm, something. I'm, I'm a big boy. I can handle it. I got it. I I really want to give it a revisit. You can do it. I'm 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 jonesing to love it because that Criterion set looks so good, and I'd like to justify being able to spend that money. It does look good. That's the last couple times I've watched the movie have been the Criterion Blu-ray, and it looks amazing. It is so good. First time, first time or two I watched it was the DVD. So going from that to the Criterion Blu-ray, just otherworldly good. Stellar. Yeah. So what about you? I love it. You went heady. So I'll say I, I thought for a minute about doing Band of Outsiders, um, but that sounded like so much homework. So I went for my double feature with the movie I thought she's going to have it was going to be like, and I'm just sticking with it so that I can have good laughs and a little bit of heart. My double feature recommendation is the Farrelly Brothers movie, there's something about Mary, uh, which will, you know, 
more laughs, far less heart, but there's a couple of tender moments. There's a moment in the end I especially really like with um, Ben Stiller and the actor that plays Cameron Diaz's brother. It always kind of gets me. Yeah. But you, you see the connection. Have you seen something? There's something about Mary? Many, many times. <laughs> much, much more lowbrow. <laughs> She's got to yeah. have it. Um, but, you know, the same kind of idea that, you know, this one woman that men are drawn to, she is not nearly as like strong a character. She She's pretty oblivious to it, actually. But it's a movie about men pining after a woman and getting in each other's way and trying to make her into this idol and object and kind of ultimately realizing the, the problem is with them for the most part. Yeah. I, I still like it. it. It will definitely push speaking of things that don't age well. You know, we've got a lot of jokes in there that. Uh, are gonna are gonna really make you groan, but I I still really like the movie. It's it's a top tier Fairly Brothers movie to me, right up there with Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, um, so I'm gonna stick it with it to have a fun movie night with a lot of laughs and a little bit of heart. Hey, Dumb and Dumber was in my top ten. It edged out E2 Mama Tambien, so uh, I'm with you. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber is great. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> I'm with you on the like silly comedies that you need, and and I think it's a fair point after this movie. Not that it's that difficult to watch. Like we've said, it could, or like I've said, it could be worse. But this movie would be a great, great counterpoint. And I would definitely do this movie second. Uh, there's something about Mary. That's, I think that's so how you cap it off for sure. <laughs> yeah. You, you have to end that movie night with a, a traveling guitar musician getting shot <laughs> on a balcony. Yeah. That's how you want your comedy movie night to end. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, I like it, man. So you're going with the two mama tambien. I am going with something. Uh, there's something about Mary, and um, we'll we'll now take the time to open it up to everybody listening. We have had our say, so make sure you are following us at Cinemas on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook because this Thursday we will ask you what is your movie you'd put into a double feature with She's Got to Have It, and then you will be right there in the zone to strike on Friday where we put it out to you to decide if She's Got to Have It makes official cinema status. Or if Justin and I have it right, putting it in the Cine Trust. The ultimate vote will be up to you guys. So please check us out on Friday on our social media platforms to cast your vote on those polls. Um, so with that, Justin, I think I think we'll wrap it up. I've I've really enjoyed this uh, this little digital book club experiment we had going on. Um, mm. We'll we'll have to do that again sometime with some other film book. But for now, we know <sighs> Fellini's next. And I'll accept that, and I'll come <laughs> in with a smile somewhere. Well, I hope so. But yeah, Fellini's next, and then, I don't know, this Christmas I got the Cinema Speculation Tarantino book that I haven't read yet, so then maybe that's our next book club item. There's not that much De Palma in the book, though. That's a bummer. We'll find something. Uh, you're, you're always welcome, man. It's always a pleasure talking movies with you. You're, you're a credit to film criticism and film podcasting, so thanks again for loaning your talents here on Cinemus and uh, stoked that you're back on World Cup's over. You're back on Casual Cinecast on the regular <laughs> talking on the waterfront, Titanic. Uh, it's it's going to be a good run here. So uh, one more time, where can folks find the Casual Cinecast? Uh, just search Casual Cinecast wherever you get your podcasts at and you can find us on YouTube and then the best place to follow us to, to vote in the polls to choose our Criterion films uh, is on Twitter at Casual Cinecast. Uh, we'll see you there. Excellent. Um, so with no further ado, everybody, we, we must be stopped. We have talked longer about She's Gotta Have It than it takes to watch She's Gotta Have It. So thank you all very much for, for listening. Justin, thanks for being on. Any final words? 
I tried to give us a short synopsis to keep the episode short, and it didn't work. We made it longer than the movie.